Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. And the topics discussed are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Hello. I'm Justin Burke, and I'm joined tonight by Dr. Chris, the Chew Man Chew. What's up? And our fantastic producer, Becca Raymond Colker. Say hi, Becca. Hello, everybody. Becca is in this uh, weird purgatory of matching on Monday and finding out matching on Friday. It's very exciting. We're all waiting with bated breath. But what people- a stressful time to be do a episode recording. Um, stressful is, ac- it's actually great. It's perfect. It's the exact right thing to get my mind totally off of um, impending finding out where I'm going. Amazing. Well, we are very happy to have you and... We are sending good luck vibes early on to everyone totally. who's matching on Friday. And by the time this airs, congratulatory um, uh, remarks to everyone who matched. And and positive vibes and support for those that didn't get exactly what they wanted this year. And there's lots of uh, great stories of resilience and overcoming adversity and in, in having a wonderful career in medicine. That's correct. Uh, but before we uh, do all that, we had a great guest tonight, Dr. Michelle Forcier, who is here to discuss gender-forming care. And to get this show started off right, hey, Chris, yeah, tell us about the show. Well, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. And tonight, we had a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Michelle Forcier. Dr. Forcier is a pediatrician and public health doctor serving the Rainbow community for over 20 years. Dr. Forcier is a professor of pediatrics and assistant dean of medicine at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University and um, publisher of many important texts on on this topic of gender-affirming care for youth. They teach us how to use a developmental approach to gender-affirming care, the evidence behind parental support for affirming gender, and how to approach these types of conversations in the primary care clinic. I learned more in this episode than I have in many, many episodes that I've recorded recently. I think everyone will enjoy this. Please enjoy. (laughs) Dr. Forcier, thank you so much for coming on to the show. We are extremely excited to have you. Um, We're pretty informal, and so I wanted to ask first, is it okay if we call you Michelle for for the duration of the episode? Please, you can call me Michelle, blue-haired lady that was in room two, and I saw her two weeks ago. Whatever works. <laughs> All right. Uh, and so to to our wonderful blue-haired lady, um, we would love to get to know you a little bit better and introduce you to our audience. And so we'd like to do a couple kind of rapid-fire questions to, to get to know you, if that's okay. Sure. And we'd start by just asking, can you can you describe yourself a little bit for us um, and and tell the audience who you are? Um, well, my name is Michelle Forcier, and I use she and they pronouns. And I'm a physician, but I'm kind of a mutt. Um, I'm a primary care pediatrician, but I've been doing all kinds of cool and wonderful work in adolescent medicine and sex and gender and reproductive justice for, gosh, now 20 years. Um, I've gotten to work in different parts of the country, and um, I take care of the bestest patients in the universe. Excellent. 
So my favorite question, and I think people always know I always ask this question, but what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? Oh, my favorite failure. There's so many. Gosh. Um, when people ask me, I know we're going to talk a little bit about gender. When people ask me about, I don't know my favorite failure, but my one of my most telling failures was in the, er, it was in the 90s, early 90s. And there was much less information and much less conversation about gender going on right now. And we, as primary care persons, referred someone to a pediatric endocrinologist and they refused to provide them care because they weren't 18. Um, and that was a really big telling point, again, that primary care pediatricians, primary care providers should be really involved in this care and that not providing care actually is a really significant decision and outcome. So I carry that with me to this day. Yeah. So, um, Michelle, uh, what is some book that I should read in the next couple of months as I'm anxiously waiting starting intern year and I read everything I'm going to read for the next four years? <laughs> well, that's not exactly true. You can make a little bit of time to do a little bit of fun reading. I love reading science fiction and fantasy. Um, and one of the reasons why I like actually reading science fiction and fantasy is because they were so far ahead in terms of like gender diversity and outside the gender binary. Um, and I like Le Guin and I love uh, Guillaume Quay. So they've done some really wonderful stuff. Yeah, I, I've heard of Ursula Le Guin. She, she's got um, a couple of really big uh, fantasy series, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, even Clan of, if you read Clan of the Cave Bear, it's a big series. And in there, there's gender diversity and sort of, again, a lot about gender roles and gender stereotypes. And I'm just like, and that was, that's been around a long time. Excellent. Wow. Awesome. Clan yeah. of the Cave Bear. That would be the book there you should go. read, Becca. <laughs> awesome. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add it to my list. And after I get my match day, you know, in a couple <laughs> days, find out where I'm going, I'm going to just go to the bookstore and, and get some good things to keep myself company. Celebrate awesome. with the cave bear. <laughs> yeah. don't, don't do that. Jill and I will get that for you. Oh. Our gift, okay? no. That's very sweet. <laughs> we love Becca. I, I agree. Uh, we're very lucky to have Becca as a producer. And while we're talking about book recommendations and other uh, media consumption, does anybody have, do we want to do a pick of the week? Anybody have any picks of the week? I have a, I actually have a few picks Go of the week. It. Yeah, um, let's hit it. So I have I have two picks of the week. Uh, pick of the week number one is actually another podcast. I don't listen to that many other podcasts besides for the Cribsiders and the Curbsiders because I feel like that's just so Obviously. much good good content <laughs> coming in all the time, every twice a week, which is awesome. But I wanted to plug this new podcast called Queer Health Pod, which is described as a podcast by and for queer people. And the producers are all queer primary care doctors um, in New York City. And um, I just think they're doing something that no one else is doing right now, which is producing content about, you know, primary care issues for the variety of LGBTQ identified patients. And all of the producers are queer identified themselves. So I just think that's really awesome. I listened to an episode recently on um, primary care for non-binary patients, and they always have like a community guest. So there's someone that like identifies with sort of some of the topics that they're talking about. So I wanted to plug that. Um, I think it's pretty topical for if you are interested in learning more about our topic today, this could be a, a good podcast to listen to. Awesome. Great. Love Didn't it. you say you had more than one pick? Oh, yeah. So <laughs> I, I had tons of picks. Uh, my other uh, pick of the week 
is some music. It's an album I've been waiting to come out for a while. It's Valerie June's newest album. I don't know if any of you guys have ever have any listened to Valerie June. No. Not familiar. She's amazing. So I've seen her once, you know, live back when that was a thing that we could do safely. But she put out an album about a week ago called The Moon and the Stars, Prescriptions for Dreamers. And it's this really beautiful, like, folk, country, bluegrass, soul, rock elements, um, very dreamy album, very grounding. So I highly recommend Valerie June as someone someone to listen to right now. It's, it's nice to have a new album come out. I was just telling Chris that I was looking for a new grounding, dreamy folk album. And so I think this is <laughs> a perfect fit. This I am going to check it out. This, this, this sounds really awesome. This sounds great. Oh, thank goodness I shared both picks of the week then. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I think that takes – I mean, I don't have anything. Yeah. Uh, any other – yeah. I, it's pretty Michelle, good. you got – Michelle, is there any, something? Yeah. Any, any pick of the week? Any media you're consuming that's worth – as Becca knows, I'm a moderate Luddite. <laughs> and so I just finished a book by Clive Barker that, again, was fantasy blending of many worlds and blending of many identities. So it was just super cool. And I did, he's a publishes or produces movies, I guess, but I, he also writes books. Wow. Awesome. These are great. We got a good list. This is good. We'll, we'll have them in the show notes. That takes care, care of our reading and, uh, and our music for, for a while. <laughs> Great. Let's uh, let's get into some content. Yeah. Okay. So, Michelle, you are covering for a colleague at Cashlack Children's General Pediatrics Clinic, and your first patient of the day is Jordan. Jordan is a 16-year-old patient who is due for a well-child visit. And so, just to kind of get us started, when you're meeting a patient for the first time, how do you ask about their gender identity, and how do you think about taking a gender history? Well, the first thing I do is I walk in the room and I'm really genuinely happy to see my patients. And I think they can tell that. I come in, I wear sometimes funky clothes, I have blue hair, and that actually matters to kids. They look at me and like, maybe she's not going to be a super scary human being as an adult that they don't know all of a sudden in their personal space. And the second thing I do is say, hi, my name's Michelle or Dr. Forcier. I use she, they pronouns, but you can call me anything. And I answer to, hey, you lady. Um, and everybody usually kind of laughs. And then the second thing is I say, why don't we go around and uh, get names and pronouns for everybody in the room? Uh, so the, sometimes a student or a resident introduce themselves and then maybe the patient and the parent. Um, and it's a good way just to remind everybody that every patient really deserves to be called by the name that they feel most comfortable with. And uh, asking about pronouns is just a sort of common courtesy. So really normalizing it so that and this is just expected. This is how we this is how we introduce ourselves. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. This is how we introduce ourselves each you know each and every day. It's good policy to do it on the phone when you're talking with patients, or the front staff is talking with patients when they're getting checked in. Sort of making no assumptions. Uh, people can have like names and pronouns um, on their badges. Certainly can put that. That's sort of a clue, along with the blue hair and the many rainbows and unicorns we have, and sort of fun things that indicate we are um, knowledgeable about LGBTQ health. You know, even a pronoun pin tells a kid, oh, they will probably know what they're talking about today, which I think helps. Because most of the time when people call for a gender visit, whether it's a parent or whether it's an adult patient, most of the time they're really scared. Like this is a big step for them for that initial, let's talk about gender appointment. And they're scared because there's been so many various negative messages out there. And there's a history of gatekeeping and mistrust that has been earned by the medical world in terms of 
transgender and gender diverse persons care. So we really try to be explicit and transparent in terms of, you know, saying we're a safe space. And we're actually really explicit and transparent with our paradigm. We call it a gender roadmap because there's no policy or guideline. We tell patients we do right from the get-go. Gender is part of biology and development. Development, biology are, of course, diverse. Why would any one person be exactly like the other? And then we say we offer patient-centered consent-based care. And one of the things that we do that the kids love especially is we say, at the end of the visit, if you think we can do a good job by you, then you should hire us. But if for some reason you're not comfortable with us or we do something that's upsetting, you can either tell us so we can change what we're doing and address it, or you can fire us. And the little kids really love thinking about firing an adult. They're like, yeah, that's <laughs> cool. I can fire you. But it puts power and control in their hands. They really do love that. It's true. So, Michelle, what advice would you have, you know, aside from just asking about pronouns, kind of the introduction of any visit for any patient, what kind of questions would you recommend that any pediatrician could ask their patients who are presenting for the first time to gender care and want to talk more? Um, How do you kind of help the patient start that conversation? Well, I'm going to even take it back a step. As pediatricians, we are all about child development, right? And so we should actively be asking every single kid at different developmental nodal points about their gender identity. We know that for youth, they expect us as providers to ask the hard questions. So it really is a part of our anticipatory guidance and screening to just ask every kid along the way, how does it feel to be a five-year-old boy or girl? What does it mean to be, you know, a 13-year-old about to start puberty um, person? Uh, how do you feel about puberty? How do you feel about your gender? What do you think about you know being a boy is cool? What do you think about being a girl is cool? And so I actually recommend that as a part of a conversation about known developmental stages and achievements that kids are going to have, we have an opportunity actually to open the conversation rather than waiting for a kid to say, I feel scared. Something doesn't feel right. I'm worried. My body and my brain are not on the same page for my gender. We can be having conversations, introducing ideas to parents and kids that as pediatric providers, we expect some kids to really go forward and explore gender. And how can we um, help your kid and help your family if that's your child's path? And I'm just trying to imagine some of my well-child visits when, when doing like a heads assessment. Are you asking questions like that as far as even if, if it's a 10-year-old, you know, what are things that are great about being a boy? What are things that you think are great about being a girl? Are there, are there ways for someone who hasn't necessarily identified in a specific gender and, and is not approaching gender clinic of really trying to, to tease it out in the best way, I guess, or to help identify if that is an issue for anyone? Well, as pediatric providers, one of the good things we get in our training maybe hasn't been a lot about gender, but it has been about how we as professionals can talk in the language of our patients. So if the patient has the language of a five-year-old, it might be asking, I see that you're wearing super pretty dress today. What does wearing super pretty dress today mean to you? What things do you like to do? What kind of activities? Do you have any nicknames? When you play a Little Mermaid, are you Prince Eric? Are you Ariel? Or are you the seagull? So we, you kind of just explore. It can't be like, um, you, know, you can't ask a five-year-old, you know, are you gender dysphoric? Because yeah. any of them will look at you like, who is that weird lady? 
Um, but you can certainly can say what is, you know, it says here that you are assigned familiar at birth or you're a girl. And these kids are pretty, kids are sophisticated. Like they could talk about this stuff. And then like, what is it like for you? What do you like about it? We had one, one um, time a resident went into a room, was wonderful. And he went to this like six or seven year old. And the resident said, well, do you like to play with girl toys or boy toys? And the kid looked at him and said, there are no girl toys or boy toys. Duh, they're just toys. And so I think you got to think that we've been sort of over genderized, uh, but there's a whole group of children and teens and young adults who already have a much more fluid and much more flexible concept of what it means to be gendered. So I just ask, you know, 10-year-old, I might say, gosh, you know, when, you know, did your mom and your sisters go into puberty? Um, and if we're talking about puberty, how do you feel about going into puberty? Does it seem like a cool thing? What's cool about it? Does it feel like a scary thing? What's scary about it? You know, what things would you want to know about puberty? What things, you know, um, can we do to help you do this in a way that feels like good for you and your body? But if you break gender down into development, it's it's less complicated. It's really, again, the stuff we do every day with child health and anticipatory guidance and development. I like using that framework to think about it. I think that already is very, very helpful. And I want to say that if through this, if there's specific parts of the language that I misspeak on, I, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm being sensitive. So please, please correct me on those things. And for, in this case, Jordan, someone who let's say, is assigned female at birth and explains that he's using he and him pronouns or is exploring a male identity, exploring these pronouns. He shared his feelings with some peers who are supportive, maybe told his parents for the first time. Can we kind of go through how we talk about uh, describing Jordan, how we talk about whether that's important, what language to use, the difference between sex and gender, and then kind of how the further discussion goes when someone brings that to our attention, what are the next steps we should be thinking about doing? Sure. And, and I mean, even professionally, we sort of get a little messy with sex and gender. The way I like to think of it is gender is sort of who we are in terms of our, for our, our limited concept, masculinity, femininity, this sort of sense of, of internal self. Even those terms really aren't adequate because we know that there's a whole world of agender persons and non-binary persons who have a lot more pathways to define, again, this sort of role in society, as well as how they feel inside their heart. There's gender identity, which is, again, how you identify in terms of maleness or femaleness to sort of unfortunately be limited in that binary way. There's gender expression which may not align with your gender identity. Um, and then there's the sex assigned at birth, which is, again, another confusing term because I'm going to talk about sex in a minute where sex is about activity and attraction and who you are attracted to, who do you um, have sex with, you know, with sexual behaviors. Um, how do you identify your orientation um, in terms of I'm attracted to this kind of person or I'm, I'm have sex with these kinds of persons and these parts go where? So I think of gender as identity and I think of sex more as behaviors and, and sort of the act of, um, of loving. There, with teens, we can get cruder, but I'm, I'm, I'm afraid you'll bleep me. You know, gender is who we are and sex is who we <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you yeah, can bleep well, me if you need to. It's a show. Teens get it, though. <laughs> you can bleep me. Wakes people up, too, if you're doing a talk at a conference. They're like, oh, my God, did she just say? So one question I have is, say, say this patient is in with their parents who are – you know, maybe more not really understanding this whole situation. Like how, you know, you can sort of say what you just said to us. And I think some people, may, many would understand that. But if there are um, maybe patients who've never been able to sort of elucidate before or the parents who are just completely uh, out of, like, don't know what's going on, how do you approach that differently? Well, I think I think the first thing is, again, knowing how already we're kind of overly limited in terms of our paradigms and terminology, I start by asking the kid how they identify. And their terms and their identification and their description is where we go. I had um, an eight-year-old patient come into Kajlak Children's Hospital the other day. Um, and that eight-year-old said, I'm a boy. And he was very clear, I'm not trans, I am a boy. And so that is the language and that's the identity and, and uh, that we use. I have other um, times where I've had parents say really sort of like awful things and use a lot of pejorative words. Um, I had one dad, again, get the gender and sexuality confused. I think he said, my kid's not a just because he likes to play the violin. So I'm like, okay, wait, we got let's stop and take a moment because dad, number one, we don't use like sort of negative and pejorative terminology that has, you know, some element of abusiveness in our clinics and number one. And then number two, um, being gay is not the same as being trans or gender diverse. And so we just sort of used it as a way to, to pick apart misconceptions that are out there uh, in the in the media. And then also just to call parents on like a zero bullying policy. Like we treat our patients with respect. We expect parents to treat their kids with respect in clinic and we expect them to treat our staff and us with respect. But models, models, again, what we want them to also do with their kid, say like dad doesn't get it or mom doesn't get it and they're using the wrong pronoun and saying he if assigned a male at birth and, and asserting female and I'll go, she, she, she. And the parent gets really irritated, but we laugh about it. And I say, your kid's a child. Your kid is not raised to correct you and, and tell you you're making mistakes. But your kid, and we know this, every time you misgender your child, it feels like a stab in the heart and your child suffers. And so by using the correct pronoun, you are number one, telling your child, I see you, I hear you, I'm here for you. I, I will help you achieve the, the goals that you need to achieve to be a safe and healthy, happy person. And we actually have literature now that supports it with the Russell 2018 article, which says parents who use the right name and pronoun their kids are protected against uh, suicidality. And that's huge. Like that's a real active role a parent can have in terms of keeping their kids safe and healthy. And it's just by using names and pronoun, totally reversible. And again, just a totally respectful way to say, I see you, I'm listening to you and I respect you. And let's say that I'm a primary care doctor and do a very good job of, of, of calling in the parents to appropriately gender their child, reference these studies. I have identified that there is, I don't know if the term gender dysphoria is still if, uh, using that, but if they are, uh, they are identifying with the gender that they were not assigned at birth, 
I did a great job of discovering this. So now I immediately refer them to a reproductive specialist like yourself. Is that correct? No, or, no, no. Right. no. <laughs> so help me out. What, 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 do I, what do I do next? So what you do next is sort of think about what you do and don't know as a primary care doctor or provider. Um, and then you think of who you know, like Becca or me. And you say, I have this great relationship with this kid for the last 10 years. And they told me that as they were starting to say, develop breast buds, they were really, you know, coming to terms that puberty scared them and they thought they were a boy, not supposed to be a girl and not supposed to go through girl puberty. So you can say, gosh, you know, I know a lot about puberty because I'm a pediatric provider, right? And I know that there's things out there that we can do together as a team to help that kid put a pause button and stopping puberty for now while they have some time to think about these things. Primary care pediatricians don't necessarily need to say, like, I want to prescribe, say, puberty blockers or Lupron. But man, by setting the family up with some basic information and getting ready to, at some point, when, when folks like Becca, who have had a lot of training um, in their both undergraduate medical education as well as their graduate and residency education, I am a primary care pediatrician. Anybody who, again, understands child development and human development can use these medicines to keep our kids safe. So you could say, I know a really wonderful clinic. I'm less comfortable prescribing these medicines, but I know they're really effective. They're really safe. Mom and dad at you know age eight or 10, you don't have to worry about any permanent long-term decisions, nothing irreversible. Most of this is about supporting your kid, helping them explore gender in a safe way. There are some safe medicines called puberty blockers, which allow us to put a pause button on puberty and that gives kids and families time to catch up and figure out what are some of our next steps? What do I need to know more about myself and gender as a teen? Oftentimes, it's more what do parents need to know about their kids' gender and kids' gender identity and giving the parent time to understand where their child is at. And again, these are totally reversible, safe medicines that um, we've been prescribing for bazillion years for precocious puberty. And we've actually been prescribing it for quite a long time for uh, gender diverse kids here and, and in Europe. So that's one of those things where a primary care pediatrician who is comfortable with gender care is possibly going to do an even better job, dare I say, than an uh, endocrinologist because we're looking at the whole patient. We're looking at the patient and parent relationship. We're looking at the kid and peer relationships. How are they going to disclose at school? How do we deal with family members who are going to be rejecting? And how do we give the kid and parents tools to deal with that? Um, how do we help kids come out to parents or come out to people in terms of ways that are safe and, and healthy for the patient? So primary care is actually super set up to take great care of these kids. We screen about sex. We screen about drugs. We screen about safety. Um, we screen for eating disorders. Um, we screen about um, psych issues. So I think it's more a matter of adapting some of what we already know and do, and then just getting a little bit more comfortable with sort of the concept of, oh, yeah, these are points of intervention where I, as a primary care pediatrician, actually am very well equipped. If I don't feel comfortable with the actual medicines and sort of further complicating, if they're sometimes, you know, patients are complicated sometimes, then there's other people that can see them. But for many of our kids, they're, they're super clear. They know who they are. 
And oftentimes their parents say, I just want my kid to be safe and healthy and, and okay. What can I do? And that's a great, that's a great role for primary care pediatrician to be like, yep, we got stuff. Yeah. Awesome. So say, say that, you know, um, Jordan is actually a little older. Um, he actually has already been through puberty. He's 16 and, you know, he's feeling, he's feeling pretty excited to get gender care. Um, and, you know, he's really interested in learning more about how to affirm his identity. And he wants to do that both socially and medically. Can you talk a little bit more about like the roadmap that you use in your gender care at Cashlack Children's and also kind of how you describe the, the range of social and medical and surgical options for, for someone like Jordan, who's like, you know, 16 and, and feeling really excited to get started. Um, well, let me ask you a question. How about Jordan's parents? Where, where are they in the process of this conversation? Because that's always important to get that kind of from the get-go. Yeah. So, so, you know, Jordan's, Jordan's mom is with him at the visit. She's really supportive. Um, she, she wants to do the right thing. She's, she's a little nervous. She, she's not a hundred percent sure of what all the options are, but overall she's supportive and, and wants to kind of, you know, uh, help, help her son out. Okay. So for Jordan um, and Jordan's mom, I would say that the way I break down and approach sort of gender affirmative care is that there's a couple different categories that people can sort of explore and expand upon. A first one is what we call social affirmation. And social affirmation are things like changing your name, changing your pronoun, changing the way you um, are expressing in terms of typical gender, you know, hair, clothing, shoes, makeup, jewelry, et cetera. So there's a, a social transition, which is completely reversible um, and oftentimes is a really great way for people to try on sort of different gender aspects to themselves. Um, in fact, we know when kids before puberty do that, uh, we don't know what the trajectory is for some of those kids in terms of being transgender, being gay, or being cisgender and heterosexual. So kind of everybody should really be able to explore um, these various aspects of gender expression. Have any of you guys, I'm going to put a question to you, have you guys explored things like, you know, wearing a dress or skirt? These are cool things that that men can do. Women dress and men's clothing all the time. And we get really caught up in, you know, this is for boys and this is for girls. So one thing we could do is actually stop having that sort of binary demarcation of boyness and girlness and say kids are going to wear clothes. And kids are going to have hair and boys can have long hair. And girls can have short hair and they're just hair and kids. So that's social affirmation is, again, having a chance to express yourself and the gender that you identify. Then there's legal affirmation. Legal affirmation is making those things a part of your permanent record. Things like changing your birth certificate, changing your driver's license, changing your um, name uh, at the county clerk's office. Those are things that are really affirming and really exciting um, for, for um, many of our patients. We have had some of our kids, and this is a really cool thing. Um, we had one of our kids in their church, they had a name, a name day. So in their faith, they celebrated their new name day like a baptism, which was really beautiful. And I think a good example of how faith-based um, communities can be really supportive for um, both parents and, and kids who are gender diverse. 
So then you've got social affirmation, you've got legal affirmation. And again, these are things that people can do or not do. We have folks that take hormones and do none of those things. And they know how they identify, but they're not going to go through a social or legal affirmation process. Then we have medical affirmation. And medical affirmation is actually incredibly safe, effective, and really not scary at all. We use puberty blockers for a completely reversible aspect of medical affirmation to stop puberty and give kids time to figure out who they are. When we block puberty with um, things like Luprolide or Histralin, we can prevent some of our um, young people from having to go through surgeries, from having their skeleton change in ways that we can't reverse, from having to have an entire process of laser or electrolysis hair removal, which again is costly, painful, and not covered by insurance, of course. So for puberty blockers, we can prevent some real major sort of feminization and masculinization changes in puberty again, so that they can remain fairly gender neutral and make decisions about going into the right puberty for them. Think about it. Like, how fun was puberty for you all? I I think not that fun. uh, (laughs) And looking back at uh, uh, middle school, Justin, (laughs) it might have been for other reasons. (laughs) It was a rough rough time in uh, the, the narrative. Yeah. So you think about middle school, <laughs> Justin, think about going the wrong puberty first, and then you have to do it again. That's like doubly hard. Agreed. <laughs> w- wouldn't wish that on anyone. That's fair. I have a quick question. Are, are the, so we're, when you're talking about these puberty blockers and that, you know, if you use them now, then maybe you're able to save yourself if they decide to go through um, more extensive uh, options later um, to be easier. Now, are these types of things also covered by insurance as well? Luckily, in more recent years, and I think Becca can even post um, the Medicare changes that came up in the 2000, I think it was maybe 15 or 16, we've had some legal changes that have said it's not okay for Medicare, Medicaid to exclude gender coverage just because they didn't want to cover it. Um, It was a necessary and equitable part, part of healthcare. And with that, We've had expanded coverage of things like puberty blockers, testosterone, estradiol, gender-affirming surgeries, such as breast augmentation, chest removal, male chest construction, hysterectomy, vulvoplasty, uh, phalloplasty. So many of these things are covered by public insurance as well as by many private insurers. There's still big pockets and gaps where certain plans that a employer purchases, they in that private insurance world can still exclude gender care. But for many patients, this care is covered. And not only is it covered, it's incredibly cost-effective. Like the, the safety, the health, the well-being, socially, economically, psychiatrically, you know, these are worth investing in, in our kids and in our community because they keep people healthy and they keep people active and doing the things that they want to be doing and should be doing. Can I ask for some of these medical options of gender-affirming care, uh, or the puberty blockers? Are there major side effects or complications? Not to discourage their use, but so that I'm an informed provider. Yeah. Are there uh, you know, increased likelihood of blood clots? Are there other things that we should be on the lookout for for these medications that we can counsel people on? Sure. So one of the things our clinic does is, again, we have a consent process to starting these medicines, just like we have a consent process to starting any medicine. And we go through the benefits always first, because why would you take a medicine if it's not going to help and all you want to talk about is risk? 
Then we talk about the common side effects, and then we talk about rare adverse events. And we talk about, again, how genetics really impact how these hormones are going to work for you and your body and your eventual physical or phenotypic gender outcomes. So that's the the first thing. And then we reassure parents, these are really safe. You and I, we're all swimming in hormones. This, we're using the exact same hormones, but you're, you, and sometimes I'll tell kids, you're going to have more control over your puberty. You're going to have more control over your estrogen than any of your peers. You're going to be able to figure out higher levels, lower levels, the speed of your puberty. I mean, I think that can be really reassuring to someone who is imagining and, and knowing that they have to go through all this to have a puberty. Um, when it would have been a lot easier just to have started off with, say, ovaries or testes. So the medicines are, number one, super safe, and we're all swimming in hormones. The second thing is there's really only a couple irreversible changes that happen with hormones, and these irreversible changes actually are usually desired and wanted. So you know, irreversible sounds scary to, I think, people and parents, but for people who want testosterone, the permanent changes of a lower voice, male patterned hair, and clitoromegaly, which is only anybody's business down there, those are usually desired by folks who want to pass as male and pass as masculine in society. For estrogen, the only permanent effect is breast development, which again, for most feminine persons is something that they want to achieve. Again, we have cisgender females who have who are hirsute, who have low voices, and who have glitteromegaly. We have boys and teenagers and men who have chests and breast tissue. So when we sort of break it down to what it really is, it becomes less scary and less less worry about harm. For side effects with testosterone, just like if you were getting your testosterone from testes, you can get some acne. You can be stinkier. You know, boy teenagers can be stinky and you can have a little bit of maybe heat intolerance as a person on testosterone. Down the road, maybe, you know, if it runs in your family, maybe you're going to have some male pattern baldness. You know, that comes as a part of being masculine and on testosterone. For females or persons with estrogen um, or persons using estrogen to achieve feminization goals, Again, you might have some maybe mood. Again, anytime you change hormones or hormones are shifting, you can maybe have some mood changes. Um, But that doesn't mean changes are bad. Many folks say, this is how I'm supposed to feel. You know, this is the range of emotion I'm supposed to have now that I'm I'm using estrogen and I understand what I was missing in terms of a, a larger depth and breadth of emotionality. The risks for estrogen, again, are really rare. Yes, estrogen changes blood clot risk, but we're using 17 beta estradiol, not birth control estradiol. We're using it sublingually or subcutaneously, again, decreasing first hepatic metabolism. We're using it at doses that are physiologic, not super physiologic. And so we, we know how to use it in really, really safe ways. And unlike with birth control, I think it's really important there is no other feminizing hormone for persons who want estrogen. And so it is not a contraindication um, for folks who say have you know migraines with aura or, or who have other issues going on that normally would be like, ooh, don't give them estrogen. Those patients oftentimes deserve estrogen um, even as we look to ways to decrease their blood clot risks in other areas. Did that answer your question? 
It does. It does. And and my understanding is that for the feminization medical treatment options, it really is estrogen and the only other one being spironolactone. Is that correct? Or, or is there more of a menu of, of items? Becca, Becca jumped. Becca, I was going to say, Becca can answer that one. <laughs> so we use estrogen as the feminizing hormone. That's the main one. It shuts down the testes. It adds estrus, 17 beta estradiol, just like ovaries would do, and it hits all the receptors. Testosterone, same thing you know, high enough doses, shut down the HPO access, shut down the ovaries, and then you get masculinizing effects for testosterone on testosterone receptors. For persons that originally say we're masculinized with testosterone, we can use some medicines to stop and reduce male pattern hair. And those are sometimes referred to as testosterone blockers. That's spironolactone, which is a classic one. Again, we use it for enduring for acne as, and hirsutism and, and cisgender females. We also can use finasteride, uh, which works at, at a different mechanism. What I try to tell patients, though, is that these testosterone blockers are blocking testosterone effects on male pattern hair. So it's not blocking testosterone per se, but it's blocking their action in terms of increasing male pattern hair. So say a patient um, eventually has a surgery that removes the testes, orchiectomy, they don't need those anymore because it really isn't a source of testosterone. For masculinizing, it's a little bit easier to add testosterone and add masculine traits oftentimes than it is to remove years and years of testosterone effects on a body. And so patients just need testosterone to shut down ovaries, to shut down periods. That's a big thing. A lot of guys like I don't know, Christopher, do you want to have a period? Most of my cis male patients are like, no way. <laughs> and most of my trans male patients are like, no way. So we shut down periods. We stop continued breast development, hip development, bony development for some of our younger teens. Again, sooner we can see them, the sooner they don't have permanent physical changes that misgender them um, or don't align with their gender identity. Um, okay, so your next patient is Alex, who is a well-known and beloved patient of the clinic. Alex is a 12-year-old affirmed girl who has been visiting the clinic yearly since age 8 when she and her family sought support for her social affirmation. Alex is here for her yearly checkup and shares that she's really concerned about puberty as she has some friends who are starting to experience changes. So how, how do you um, talk to your patients about puberty um, and then, you know, kind of further off of that, how do you assess Tanner staging and when patients might be entering puberty? Well, and, and this is something you can do with your cisgender patients too, which is, I think, again, really important. So the first question I'll ask is like, you know, what have you and your parent talked about for puberty? Like, have you had a discussion with them and what did they tell you and what do you know? Um, and then, you know, if they're worried about changes, I'll say, well, what changes are you talking about? You know, tell me more about those because different kids and different people worry about different things. So again, using as much as possible the language and the, the concept and the paradigm um, of, the, of the child, I think is really helpful. And then things I might ask would be to a parent, um, when did you go through puberty or when did siblings go through puberty? Because we know that puberty can be considered normal with breast development starting at age eight. It drops down earlier and earlier. So having these conversations as kids are, again, developing is just so important. 
you might look on the um, pediatric growth curve and see if they're starting that sort of upward trajectory for um, velocity, height velocity. Um, that's another piece to both predict puberty as well as help a, a child either limit their height if they're worried about being, you know, a six foot five woman or maximize their height if they're, you know, wanting to be as tall as they possibly can as an affirmed man. So again, we're just using sort of standard pediatric developmental concepts for puberty to get a feel for where that kid's at. And then, you know, saying to kids, if we keep talking, you don't have to go through the wrong puberty. And that's why I love seeing kids way before they get to puberty. They draw pictures, we play with them, we develop rapport with parents, the kids again get to hire a fire us. Um, you know, those before you have to make decisions when you're just talking about what's ahead are really wonderful visits and a way to build rapport and trust with everybody. And we tell kids, nothing is ever going to happen in this room that you don't want to have happen. So I'm never going to make a kid be Tanner staged and have me look at private parts if they're not ready for it. I'm never going to make a kid give us blood if they're not ready for it. I'll tell them what I can or can't tell about what's going on for puberty without certain pieces of information. But it's always a real consent-based process where they have ownership of their body. And we make that consent really clear in terms of they're making these decisions and we're listening and we're waiting for them to be ready for when they're ready for whatever next steps. Um, and so those are some of the things we do. And I tell patients, as if we're talking, there's no way you're going to go into the wrong puberty because we have really safe medicines that we know how to get for kids and we know how to give to kids so that you can be a kid. You can go to school, you can do your chores, and they all groan when I say that, and you can have friends and that's what kids are supposed to do. That's your that's your job. You shouldn't be spending a lot of time worrying about the wrong puberty. That's my job. Um, and even with some of the little kids, we use some imagery where I ask if I can hold their worries or hold their concerns about puberty. Because again, that's my job. Your job is to be a kid and go to school and make friends and play. And uh, some of the kids really take that to heart. One kid, when I asked them a couple years down the line, you know, are you are you worried about puberty? And they looked at me like I was an idiot. And they're like, no, you told me not to. You are. And I'm like, okay, there you go. There you go. Um, so being explicit about like, again, for parents, this is, these are the things that come before puberty. These are the things that say the start of puberty. Anytime you have any concerns or worries, these are the ways we would check for puberty. Just reassuring kids so that they're not like watching that, you know, the train or coming down on them and saying, I can't get out of the way. They, they can get out of the way and they can stay safely out of the way. For these medications that are puberty blockers, one, when is the indication to start them? Are you really trying before any level of puberty or are you waiting to start seeing initial signs? And can you give descriptions of what these puberty blockers are? What are these medications? Yeah. Um, well, puberty blockers are GnRH analogs. And so they kind of are what I, what, this is how I talk to patients. They're kind of like fake hormones. And they pretend to be these hormones that you produce, but they sort of clog up all the receptors. And then the glands in the brain that tell ovaries and testes to do their job as a teenager, they are clogged up and there's no message to the testes and ovaries. And everybody just takes a rest. Everybody thinks, oh, I don't need to do anything. And so you go back to pre-pubertal levels of hormones. So for kids who haven't gone through any puberty, they stay pre-pubertal. 
for kids who have already gone through puberty, because we do use these for patients who have gone all the way through puberty, it just stops them where they are. It doesn't really undo a whole lot. And so we think about starting puberty blockers ideally would be early Tanner 2. So early pubertal development, because you're not going to have all those like really phenotypic changes that happen later in puberty. If you're doing it early Tanner 2 and you have a little bit of breast buds, those can actually resolve and regress and go away. And you have a kid that doesn't have to have male top surgery. If you say use puberty blockers early Tanner 2 for a masculine identified person, they may never have a period, which is huge for some of our kids. Say for um, a feminine identified person, they're not going to get male pattern hair and they're not necessarily going to have these skeletal changes that have them, as they say, clocked at, you know, in the wrong gender. Um, so ideally, early Tanner 2 is, is when we like to start. Now, for kids who have significant um, anxiety about approaching puberty, again, we might use labs and other things if they're sort of escalating from a mental health standpoint, we might do it a little earlier in terms of very early Tanner 2. We have a lot of kids where we use puberty blockers all throughout the stages of puberty because sometimes that's the only hormone a parent will agree to at the beginning or even the middle. I have a question about, about that because I've seen some different um, practice patterns and, and some interesting new, new things with puberty blockers. Um, how long are are we able to safely keep kids or or even young adults on puberty blockers? Is there um, a time that we should be considering stopping them for for any reason like bone density or, or anything like that? So again, after just like re reassuring, totally reversible, mom and dad, mom and mom, um, dad and dad, totally reversible, long used, very few side effects, very few adverse events that we seem to associate it with. We typically say we, we, we use puberty blockers for a period of time to allow kids to develop, grow, again, figure out their path to their gender identity. It also, again, gives the parents that time to figure things out and be more comfortable. Historically, again, historically and, and somewhat arbitrarily, we think and say that around age 16, we kind of want people to think about they don't necessarily have to say, I'm a gendered person or I identify as female or male, but we think it would be a good idea for them to have some gender hormones. And most of that is because we think it might be hard for a kid or feel weird for a kid or have social implications for, say, someone who's 17 or 18 in high school, senior, to again present as a prepubertal you know, child. We think that they're probably going to need you know, some gender hormones eventually for bone health and for brain cholesterol heart health but we're and we think again historically that if we were to have pay, uh, people in menopause you know basically from 15 to 80 we think that would be bad because again of those bone brain heart cholesterol all those other sort of cognitive things that and and physical things that gender hormones do but we don't know uh, there's an interesting pediatrics article that does a model looking at someone who doesn't ever stop puberty blockers. And they look at the big outcome of, of, of risks that we care about oftentimes to say something like estradiol or, or estrogens, um, which also are part of the testosterone conversion and keep a um, male person's bone health good. But um, they did some modeling and the outcome of risk in terms of fractures, according to their models, was still low. So we, I sort of say, we, I'm telling you what I know now, 
our job is to keep up with the literature, keep up with the information so that as soon as we know more, we bring that to the table so you get to use it in this menu of options of care to make decisions that make sense for you. Um, so we're very transparent about it's sort of a, there's moving targets. There's huge changes in language and information and, and knowledge. But the bottom line is these medicines are so safe compared to not affirming a patient and not giving them care, denying them care, denying them who their authentic self is. That is consistent time and time again over years and years of studies. And if we do get them on day one of Tanner stage two, we have a puberty blocker in, is the idea that that would come off if you start the testosterone or estrogen? And if so, also, how do you counsel the patient on when they are expected to see changes? Is okay. it we've, we've put it off, now they know that they want to uh, identify and have feminine um, physical attributes, so we're starting estrogen. How does that typically work in an ideal setting? So, you know, being humans and being less knowledgeable and perfect as mother nature often is, we try to emulate mother nature. Um, so for someone who's tanner, early tanner two and really doesn't go through the wrong puberty, when it's appropriate, when they're ready, when parents are ready, when we are in a place where height is important to consider, um, peers in terms of their peers are going through puberty um, and where they are emotionally in terms of their needs. And we say, let's keep the puberty blockers going because it's going to block the wrong puberty from occurring. And just like your cisgender peers, you're going to go through this increase of puberty hormones until you get to adult levels. And then I remind the kids, you're going to have more control over your puberty hormones, the what, how much, and when in terms of achieving your puberty. And I think, again, it's important to point out resiliency pieces because for many of my kids, they don't, you know, I say, yeah, it is unfair. You have to come see us to have these gender hormones. Yep, that stinks. I get it. It's not fair and it's not something that, you know, we wish you had to do, but let's make the best of it and let's use this in a really meaningful way so that you have the most control that you can have over your body. For kids that have already gone through puberty, then it's a different pattern. It might be block puberty and when parents feel more comfortable, yes, let's start some gender hormones. And we might start at higher doses because they're older and all their friends have gone through puberty. And then we have folks that come to us after puberty and they go right into testosterone or estradiol and they use, um, again, adult, they would use doses that also adults use. Again, 10 or five people would use to suppress the other endocrine system. So there's a million ways to use puberty blockers. And I think the big takeaway about, you know, puberty blockers, generation analogs, histrolin, um, histrolin, um, luprolide from testosterone, 17 beta estradiol, is these are actually really safe medications. And they've gotten this big sort of dramatic media sex change, drugs, and surgeries that are going on in kids. And that's just not the case. Um, and that gets played up to, to play on people's fear and to play on people's otherness. And, and again, for, for political and other reasons. And it's, it's not fair to kids and it's not fair to families. Yeah, I think, you know, th to that point, we've spoken a lot today about how things go well for trans and gender diverse young people with appropriate familial, school, medical, legal support, all of those things. Um, but as you're saying, you know, unfortunately, we know this isn't the case for many young people. 
as there's still widespread social and legal discrimination. And I think we're in a moment where we're seeing sort of a backlash where there's a lot of legal um, actions being taken, even against providers that are trying to provide this kind of care. And transphobia, you know, that we're seeing can also be compounded by other forms of systemic discrimination on the basis of race and class and educational background. Um, and I was wondering, ableism, I mean, there's, there's, there's so much there. Um, and I know this is a, kind of a huge question and maybe a topic for another, another episode as well, but how do you see, you know, some of these effects of structural discrimination play out in your patients' lives? And what are some effective ways that we, you know, as, as primary care physicians can really advocate for our patients and our communities? Well, I think the first thing is by, again, if we're using more of a developmental model, like, again, gender diversity is a part of human diversity. It's part of how children grow and figure out their identity, right? Identity formation is what teenagers are supposed to do, what children are supposed to do. Um, and actually, in, in sort of an age of society, what adults still do. I see patients that um, affirm at age 70 because they are ready and they say, I waited too long. So throughout the lifespan, we are searching for who are we and who is our best self and what does my authentic self look like, sound like, what do they need, where are they going? And so if we're curious in our primary care by asking about identity, gender identity, sexual identity, or we ask about identity and roles in families and at work, um, spiritual identity. If we're curious about these aspects of human development and identity formation, then we're going to be sort of just generally screening and also modeling for families oh, like we make no assumptions. There's lots of ways to be gendered and there's lots of ways to be sexual in the world. And let's let's figure out how your kid can talk about it with us and with you safely because we know that kids who can get parent support and also talk honestly with parents about sex, drugs, gender, they're healthier. And, and most parents, even if they're struggling with, I don't want my kid to be trans, they do want their kid to be safe, healthy and happy and have a productive place in the world. And so we articulate that, that first meeting will be like, I might say stuff you don't want to hear, but I'm here to be a really good doctor for your kid. That's what you, that's why I'm here. And I'm going to tell you stuff that I know works, that I know is studied, that I know is safe and healthy. And I'm going to say things from a different perspective, but with the same goal, safe, healthy, happy, productive kid in the world. And on that even the parents that hate being there can agree, right? And so we try to find that common ground. And I'll tell parents, I know this is your most precious person in the world. Like you look at this kid and you're like, this is like the best thing I've ever done. Um, and I'll say, yeah, and, and we want your kid to be healthy and happy too. And, and you're asking us for some like expertise. And I reassure parents, you know, when you're sitting there that first visit or two, you're scared and you don't believe any of this. And I can tell you from doing this for 20 years that if we support your kid at our three-month visit and our six-month visit, you're going to see a healthier, happier, more productive kid. And you're going to be convinced yourself that this is the right thing to do. And right now you're trusting me to say, this is how it goes. And you being there, you supporting your kid, this is the path it can take. If a kid has to hide from parents. If a kid has to be misgendered and misnamed, I've had parents cut their kids' hair off in their sleep. I've had parents um, force them to dress in clothes that they do not want to wear. I've had, um, you can imagine 
all kinds of all kinds of stories. When parents don't see their child, when parents refuse to accept their child's authentic self, then a kid suffers. Their self-esteem, their self-worth, what's wrong with me? If your parent can't love you, that's a huge, huge hit to a child's development. Um, and that's where, again, that focus on parents is so critical because time and time again, we know that when parents can sort of get it together, they can they can grieve what they expected as a cisgender you know, childhood and then walking their daughter down the aisle in a big white dress or whatever, or d- ways they were going to have grandchildren and things like that. They can grieve and, and think about all they want, but parents need to be present for their child and take care of their own process in terms of parenting a gender diverse child on the side. Do their own therapy, whether it's individual, marital, participate in family therapy if that's necessary, but be fully present, reassuring that kid, you're my kid. You know, you could be blue, green, and purple striped. I would love you no matter what, because you're mine. And we we really have to get people out of the mindset of their projections on their kids. I expected different. Um, yeah, I get it. And and we're very lucky in our clinic. We have a social worker named Jill Wagner who will often take parents aside. And while I'm sort of the bad cop saying, I have to tell you this, you saying no to hormones till 18 is wrong. It's wrong. It's against medical advice and it will harm your child. I, I, can, I can be very clear because we know more and more now. Jill can also say, and I know that's hard for you to hear. And I know that makes you sad. And I know you're grieving the loss of sort of your expected future with your child. However, this is such an important role and such an important safety and health piece you can add by allowing them to be safe and loved at home. And when you kind of put it, kids who are safe and, lo- safe and loved at home do well, it's kind of a duh. <laughs> um, but it's nice to have studies that, that, that support that, you know, so then we can sort of argue it's not, you know, me being a gender doctor. It's me being a pediatrician and a mom saying, we know this is important and we need you to hear how important it is because I want your kid to be safe, healthy around doing wonderful things the rest of their lives. And we know this is a big piece of it. I think that's a really nice note to to kind of end on. I feel like that's a great big kind of overarching picture. Are there are there other take home points though that you you think we you want to leave listeners and us with? Yeah, I would say, you know, gender care is primary care. Everybody and and different nodal points of their life and development across the lifespan is dealing with gender and gender issues. And so I think being curious and asking about that aspect of human development and self-health needs is a good thing. It also models that there's not one way or two ways to be gendered. It models that there's so many ways to be gendered. And we're here as your primary care pediatrician or your gender specialist to say, we're listening to you and we can help you be your best and most, most authentic self. I think, honestly, I think working in gender, I think has helped me be a better overall pediatrician analysis and medicine doc for cisgender patients too, because I don't make assumptions. I'm curious. I ask and I let patients tell me, this is who I am. This is my experience. And then I say, it's consent-based, patient-centered care. You tell me what your goals are, what you're trying to avoid, and I'll offer you this menu of options that you, with autonomy and with consent, say, this is the right path for me. And together, we move forward for you to achieve your goals. 
And I really like that, again, patient-centered, consent-based care. I think, lastly, an area that I've been exploring more um, and is um, trauma-informed care and how important that is um, for us to recognize in so many of our, our beautiful rainbow patients that both society and medicine has in and of itself inflicted trauma on our patients. And I actually really try to address that more um, overtly with all my patients now. And it is amazing how patients really respond to that and respond to the fact that I'm asking them to give me a chance to, to build a relationship where they can trust me as opposed to expecting it. And that they have the power to tell me, this is how I want my care to be. And these are the things that will help me respond better to you when you act and work in this way. And I really like that. And that works very well with gender kids um, and, and families who, again, they often wish they weren't having to be with us, but we try to make that visit like as super awesome as possible. We recorded a great trauma-informed care with Dr. Heather Forty, and so a great opportunity to plug that episode 15. Um, and speaking of plugs, is there any, you see that segue, Chris? <laughs> is good. there any, like um, anything that you'd like to plug or any resources you'd like to share with our listeners? You know, I would say that there's some interesting resources out there. Um, uh, I do some work with a, a private nonprofit called Open Door, who is really working on growing from a trauma-informed, really community-centered um, based approach. And I really like the, the group of people I'm working with there. I think that there's some interesting trainings online for people uh, where, again, with Zoom stuff, Fenway um, and Harvard offer some uh, trans echo trainings um, where you can train your whole staff and you don't have to leave your office. You know, you can, you know, have that breakout time once a month. And again, like say, I'm doing the work to be trans informed and trans savvy. And again, it's not, it's not impossible to do. The other piece I would say is that get to know your local providers who do this work because it's so easy to tap into their um, expertise and experience and grow your own. I didn't get trained as a, as a gender expert. I did this because I was interested in, in sex and reproductive justice and adolescent development. And it became really clear there was a need for pediatricians and for primary care folks to start um, giving those kids a voice. And so I look at it as if I can do it, anybody can do it. Awesome. I'm not med peds. I'm like not like the super smarty people. I'm just like plain primary care peds. I'm just I'm just you know it's a disclosure. I, you know I I write for up to date as a disclosure. I'm an author for Springer, and I am not the super smarty med peds person. I'm just not. Uh, we'll make you honorary med peds. Yes. You're 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 <laughs> you're one of us. Um, Rebecca's laughing. <laughs> this was wonderful. I, <laughs> I I feel like I took a lot that I will incorporate into my primary care practice. Most definitely. And honestly, I feel like gender affirming care seems much less overwhelming now. And not to say that the work that you do is easy, but I feel like I have a much better grasp of of what it entails. You know, the way I look at it is it's primary care. And again, we can all do it. And if we all do it, access and equity are assured for all our patients. I And I have to close with this. The patients that I'm most worried about are not necessarily the kids I see in clinic. There are a whole bunch of families and a whole bunch of kids and a whole bunch of adults 
that are still hiding and still invisible. And those are the patients that one of my goals over the future is how do we um, make that access and, and equitable care available to them. And that's our job as providers. It's not their, their job necessarily to make this happen. It's, it's our job to make it happen. I love that. I, great note to end on. Thank you so much for, for sharing your time, your experience, your expertise with us. Uh, this was a pleasure and very, very grateful for, for you coming on. Most definitely. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We are committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. To do that, we need your feedback. So please, subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. You can also email us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Becca Raymond Kolker and our wonderful social media team. Tonight, I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Becca Raymond Kolker. And this has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. Thank you. Good night. Bye. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.